from high above historic Belfont, and still in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, the podcast that's mostly about drinking in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode 16. What is whiskey, anyway? You know, I've been thinking about doing this episode since well before Seen Through a Glass launched back in November of 2022. I was thinking about the OG Beer Bar series, interviewing the owners and managers of Central Pennsylvania's pioneering beer bars, when I thought, you know, there are other basic episodes that should be done, like how things are made. There are a lot of things that we buy, that we eat or drink and we enjoy, but we may not really have a good handle on how they get made. Or we might think we do, and it turns out we're running on bad information. I know that's happened to me. So I'm going to do the occasional episode on how things are made. Beer, cheese, wine, potato chips, candy, coffee, even Scrapple and Ring Bologna, if you're interested. And we're going to start it today with whiskey. Because although you might think of Kentucky and Tennessee when you think of American whiskey, its roots are right here in Pennsylvania, scattered across the state from the Delaware River to the Monongahela. We're not going to get too far into the weeds, but you're going to learn a lot in the next 30 minutes. First, Here's what I'm drinking today, and yes, of course, it's a whiskey. You know, I was recently looking at the results from the New York International Spirits Competition, a competition with judges I know and respect, and in the list of double gold medal winners, along with well-known whiskeys like Aberlauer, Lagavulin, Four Roses, Russell's Reserve, and Johnny Walker, was Big Spring Spirits American Whiskey made here in Belfont. And you know, I don't know what surprised me more, that it was Big Spring or that it was a double gold for a blended American whiskey. I've always said that Philip Jensen is making Canadian whiskey in America at Big Spring, and this whiskey is exactly that. He makes three whiskeys, corn, wheat, and rye, ages them, and then blends them, which is a really Canadian way of making whiskey. Winning an award with that is pretty cool. This medal-winning batch, which is unfortunately already sold out, was aged six years in new charred American oak barrels, which is not, of course, the Canadian way at all. I have some here. Let's give it a try. It's got a, um, a nice uh, kind of burnished copper look to it. I mean, six years in new American oak will do that to you. It is pushing out of the glass at me. I wouldn't say an urgent nose, but it's certainly noticeable. Oh, man. It smells kind of bourbony. Oh, with, you know, and that, that shows you that uh, while people talk about mash bell with bourbon, the big thing on bourbon is that new charred oak barrel. That's where you're getting, well, obviously all the color, but um, a lot of the aroma and flavor as well. Mm. Wow, that's, um, it's sweet, but rich. Uh, not a Not a candy sweet, but more, more almost like, I don't know, maple syrup without the maple. It's a, it's a complex, rich sweetness. Let's try some. Wow, that is like, that is halfway between a bourbon and a Canadian. It's still got the, um, the smoothness of the Canadian, the, the, the rounded, mellowy, almost caramel flavor of a Canadian whiskey, but it's got the backbone of a bourbon. Um, just kind of stands up on its own and it's more broad shouldered than almost any Canadian I've had, but it's at the same time more mellow than most bourbons. I, I can see why this won a medal. This is a really interesting whiskey. 
Wow, that's a good job there. It is at a, and unfortunately, I don't have the proof on this. Oh, yes, I do. It's a 90.6 proof. This is the, uh, uh, actually, the newer batch. And if, I mean, I assume the other one was like this. You know, would I rather drink this than Lagavulin or Four Roses? I don't know, but I'd put it in the rotation. Do yourself a favor. Try some of this stuff. You may look at it and think, oh, blended American, and think of something like Seagram's or Four Queens. This is not that. Okay, blended American whiskey, unfortunately, also means the stuff that's 70% grain alcohol and 30% whiskey, which we're allowed to do because people want a cheap whiskey, and that's fine if you want, um, you know, a, a drink with some whiskey flavor to it. But this is straight up balls out whiskey. Uh, nice job. As I said, American whiskey largely started in Pennsylvania. Although we think of Pennsylvania whiskey in terms of the Monongahela Valley or the big distillers that were around Philadelphia, or maybe Bombergers in Lebanon County, whiskey was also made here in central Pennsylvania. Distilleries in the areas around Altoona, Bedford, Harrisburg, Highspire Pure Rye was a pretty big brand at one time. They thrived in the 1800s, up until Prohibition, mostly making rye whiskey. But legal distilling didn't really come back in the area post-Prohibition, until recently. Why did central Pennsylvanians make whiskey? Distilling was a natural here. For farmers and legal distillers, often one in the same operation, whiskey was a way to get a bulk product like grain to market in a region that was, and still is, notoriously inconvenient to traverse. Eight mule loads of grain could be distilled into one mule load of whiskey, which sold for more than the grain and didn't get moldy or eaten by rats. And for farmers and illegal distillers, also sometimes the same operation, the ridges, steep wooded valleys, and narrow gaps of central Pennsylvania offered cold, iron-free water and secrecy, the best friends of the moonshiner. Prohibition made moonshining a profitable, if risky, business, and a moonshiner named Prince Farrington, his actual given name, made a lot of shine and a lot of money around the intersection of Center, Lycoming, and Clinton counties. We're probably going to do an episode on him at some point. There's still a tradition of moonshining in the area, but I know nothing of that. Nothing. I swear. Legal distilling has returned to the area in the past 10 years. Big Spring Spirits, Barrel 21, Blackbird, Hungry Run, Hidden Still, Mid-State, Nomad, and others. And once again, whiskey is part of our economy, and increasingly, our drink choices. As Pennsylvanians, then, we should be conversant with how whiskey is made in general, and maybe a little more so about rye whiskey, which is really our heritage and contribution. And as we like to say, the more you know, the better it tastes. Now, I usually do an interview in each segment, but this time, I'm going to go solo. I mean, I did literally write a book about this. Two of them, in fact. The following largely comes from the first chapter of my second whiskey book, Whiskey Masterclass. The rest of the book goes into much, much more detail. If you're interested, both Whiskey Masterclass and my other book, Tasting Whiskey, are available at Amazon, BN.com, and of course, at your local independent bookstore. Here's how whiskey is made. After that, I'll run through a few common misconceptions about whiskey. But maybe I should have another whiskey before we start, get the old tonsils lubed up. Wait, I don't have tonsils anymore. Well, something or other. It sounds like a good idea anyway. So, here's what else I'm drinking today. 
It's another pretty special Big Spring Spirits release. In fact, I think this was a this is a single barrel. Uh, I don't know if there's any of it still around. This was an eight-year-old rye that they put out for World Whiskey Day this year. Eight-year-old rye, a single cask, uh, and he very, very slowly proofed this down. He showed me the, uh, the timing of his proofing. Um, proofing is when you add water to whiskey to bring it to bottling strength. And the thing is... You want to add the whiskey slowly because, one, it's actually a process that creates heat. So you don't want the whiskey getting too warm because then it's possible that volatiles might cook off and you'd lose some flavor or aroma. But you also want to let the whiskey sit a bit after it's had the water added to it because you want to give it a chance to, I don't know, meld, I guess is the word um, I'm looking for make sure all that stuff settles in and the, and the water gets to all the parts of the whiskey. It sounds crazy, but you know, you don't really want to stir it. So you kind of have to let it move through the whiskey on its own terms. So it takes a while to, to proof a whiskey. You can't just dump the water in anyway, eight year old rye whiskey from big spring. And the nose is a um, kind of like a spicy candy. Uh, my grandmother had these, uh, assorted hard candies that she kept in a bowl by my uh, grandfather's recliner. And I mean, he was fond of them. And so was I, they were gorgeous. They were these pretty little things looked like stained glass, but then they also had this really spicy, sweet, and slightly minty flavor to them. I, I can still remember them, even though it's been, it has to be at least 50 years since I had one. And this is what that aroma is like almost a little bit of uh, just a hint of clove and some, uh, again, uh, more uh, a suggestion of peppermint than actual peppermint and like a, a meadow grass, uh, the kind of tall, almost rank grass you get. And when I say rank, I mean how it grows, not um, that it's rank smelling. But, oh man, there's a, a really interesting interplay of grassy, minty, herbal smells there. You know, it's not heavy, but I don't want to say it's light necessarily because that would give an, uh, uh, that would imply that there was not a lot of flavor. It's not, it's a light mouthfeel, but there's a lot of flavor. Again, that melange of, of spices and, and grassiness and just a hint of mint. Surprisingly, not a lot of oak. Well, not surprisingly, actually pretty sure this was a used barrel. So not a lot of wood, um, a little bit of vanilla, a little bit of oak dryness, and mostly the herbs and the spice and a little bit of sweetness. It's a, a subtle and a pretty nice whiskey. Mm. Yeah. Hope you can make some more of that. All right, let's get into the, uh, the shank of things here. And let's start with this most important fact. Whiskey is an agricultural product. It starts in the fields. Grain, corn, barley, rye, wheat, is grown and harvested, but only the best goes to the distiller. It must be free of rot, has to have the right levels of protein and nitrogen, the right moisture content, and critically, it simply has to smell clean and right. There are two main things distillers are looking for in grain. The most important are the starches that will supply the fuel for fermentation. But to convert those starches into the sugars that our friends the yeast will turn into alcohol and interesting aromatics, 
we need something else from the grain as well. Enzymes. You've heard the word a lot, but what is an enzyme actually? Enzymes are organic chemicals that act as catalysts in biochemical reactions. Okay, so they make things in cells happen faster, or at all, and they're not used up in the process. Catalysts are kind of like consultants, really good, effective consultants. And to get those enzymes, you need malt. Now, you've probably heard of single malt scotch, probably maybe had malted milk balls, but have you ever wondered what malt is? First, it's almost always malted barley, mainly because it malts so well and tastes so good. I can hear you thinking, well, great, what's malt mean then? But what's malted? Malting is essentially playing a trick on grain. We soak the grain with cool water, which switches on the little chemical computer in the kernel and makes it think, hey, it's spring, let's go! This triggers the release of enzymes that transform the hard, insoluble starches in the grain into soft, soluble starches, the first step to creating the sugars needed for fermentation. And of course, it's also the first step to creating, um, to turning the kernel into food for the new sprout of the grain. It's also kind of cool that we call this malting because the old German root of the word malt is the same as the root for melt. And the malted grain, it softens, it melts. It's a little word origin poetry for you there. So the malt is then kilned, heated, both to dry it out so it can be ground and to kill the sprout so it stops eating starch. We need that starch. If the malt is to be smoky, like the peated malt that goes into Scotch whiskey, this is where it gets smoked, by heating it over a smoky, smoldering fire of peat, or wood, like cherry or hickory. So now we've got grain with soluble starches, but we still have to push those starches one more step to become sugars before the yeast can use them. Well, we're in luck. Some of those same enzymes will work in this process, and the other enzymes needed are created during malting. Honestly, it's almost enough to make you believe in intelligent design. And that's why even bourbon or rye whiskeys usually contain 10 to 15% barley malt in their recipe, or the mash bill. It's for those enzymes, which are so abundant in malted barley, that they can also convert the starches in the corn, the rye, or the wheat. Of course, these days, some distillers simply add bulk enzymes to their whiskey mash, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I dare you to taste a difference. Either way, the grains are then milled to a coarse flour, mixed with water, and that mixed is called the grist. Now the grist is heated, and now it's called the mash. Sorry, it's only grist for a little bit. <laughs> the heating activates the enzymes, and they work best in a fairly narrow range of temperatures, ranges that are slightly different for the two major enzymes, so the process is a little bit finicky but it's also one of the coolest, most magical moments in making whiskey, or beer, because they're pretty darn similar processes pre-distillation. As you're heating the mash, you have to stir it so it doesn't burn, so all the heat's distributed evenly. And it's thick, it's like stirring thick oatmeal. And then suddenly, in the space of less than 10 seconds, the starches in the entire mash convert to sugars, and suddenly the mash isn't sticky or thick anymore. It's slick and thin. It's a chemical miracle. Anyway, then the distiller has to make a choice. They can either strain out the grain solids like brewers do, and like Scottish and Irish distillers do, creating a sugary liquid called wash or wort to be fermented. Or they can pump everything to the fermentation tanks, grain and all, which American distillers do, 
and call the Chunky Soup Distiller's Beer. This is also where the sour mash is added to the beer, as much as one part in three, but I'll explain what the sour mash actually is in a minute. Either way, yeast is now added to the cooled sugary liquid, and fermentation begins. The yeast chemically attacks the sugars and consumes them, creating alcohol, carbon dioxide, and a variety of flavor and aroma compounds. The resulting distiller's beer, still containing the grains, or wash, the strained liquid, now it's somewhere between 7 and 15% alcohol, goes to the still. This next part gets a bit complicated, but it's the absolute heart of whiskey, the distillation, the part that makes it a spirit. Now, if the distiller's using a pot still, that's a big round copper vessel with a tower kind of thing coming out the top and a spout coming off the top of the tower at an angle. The wash is added and the still is heated, usually by steam coils, but some distillers still use a gas fire directly under the copper. The wash is heated until the alcohol starts to vaporize. Alcohol has a lower boiling temperature than water, which is the key to distillation. The first distillation, usually in a larger wash still, vaporizes the alcohol and aromatics, leaving most of the water behind. The shape and size of the still has a big effect on the whiskey to come. If it's tall, with a fairly level spout running off to the condenser, a lot of the vapors will condense in the still and fall back to be heated again, a process known as reflux. This makes for a lighter, cleaner spirit, because only the lightest, cleanest vapors are managing to get out and into the condenser. But a short still, with a spout angled downward, will let more of the heavier vapors escape to the condenser, giving a hefty spirit with some broader character to it. Now, the second distillation in a smaller spirit still is about splitting the spirit run to capture its alcohol heart. What does that mean? There are other compounds than alcohol that vaporize at those lower temperatures, and they aren't all desirable. They're called heads, or foreshots. Those are allowed to be cooked off first and diverted to a holding tank before the distiller makes their first cut and starts collecting the cleaner alcohol vapors and desirable aromatics, called the hearts, in usable amounts. The hearts are captured until they peter out and other undesirable compounds start to join them in moving up the still. These are known as the tails, or feints, and they are also put aside. There may be an additional distillation, common in Irish whiskey, to further clean the spirit. Now, in a beer still, or stripper still, uh, also called a column still, a continuous flow of that chunky distiller's beer enters a tall metal column, maybe 70 feet tall and as much as 6 feet across. The beer drops down through a series of perforated plates, while live steam makes its way up through the same plates. As the alcohol is heated by this steam, it's stripped out of the beer as vapor and rises along with the steam near the top, where it's collected and sent to the condenser. If you recall, I noted that the pot stills are copper. They all are, and it's not just because copper is easy to hammer into the complex curves of a pot still. Column stills have copper in them as well, even if it's just some cut-up copper pipe in the upper levels, or copper tubes in the condensers. Copper, it turns out, is crucial to making good whiskey, because there's a chemical reaction between the copper and the hot vapor that strips out naturally occurring sulfur compounds in the spirit. They smell and taste awful but a proper amount of copper, where the vapor is hot, strips them out. It also slowly strips out the copper, so stills have to have those parts replaced over the years, 
but it's worth it. Anyway, back to the column still. The rough distillate comes out of the condenser and is sent to a second distillation, usually in a rudimentary pot still known as a doubler. The leftover beer, still containing the grain solids and dead yeast, drains to the bottom of the column, and that's the sour mash. It's full of leftover protein and is acidic by now, and goes back to the fermenters to feed the yeast and set the optimal pH level of the mash. All big American distillers use sour mash. Most of the smaller ones do not. Again, it's a choice. The new make, the just distilled spirit, is clear as water and smells mainly of the sweetness of the grain, accentuated by the sweetness of the alcohol. To be whiskey in America, bourbon, rye, wheat whiskey, it must come off the final distillation at no more than 160 proof, but it can't go into the barrel at more than 125 proof. So water is slowly added to bring it down to the proof desired for barreling. Some distillers go as low as 100 proof before putting it in the barrel. Now there are discussions and assumptions about lower entry proof being better and higher entry proof just being about saving money because it uses fewer barrels for the same amount of whiskey, but mostly they're just different ways of making whiskey. Better? Worse? Like everything else, that's personal preference. And that's how everyone else looks at it. To the best of my knowledge, the other major whiskey-producing nations don't have maximum barrel entry regulations, and their maximum proof off final distillation is 94.8%. What kind of barrel is used has much more influence than the entry proof. The barrel may be a new, charred, white oak barrel, used almost universally for American whiskeys, and sparingly in some others, or a used oak barrel that once held other whiskey, or wine, or a fortified wine like sherry or port. The type of oak, how it's charred or toasted, the size of the barrel, and of course, whether it's new or used, all makes a difference. The barrel is then closed with a wooden or plastic plug called a bung and put away in a warehouse to age. Over the next however many years, the whiskey will push into the wood as summer heat makes it expand and pull back as the cold of winters makes it contract. The warehouse may be heated and cooled to create that effect on a more rapid, consistent basis. As the spirit moves in and out of that barrel wood, it is extracting color, flavor, and aroma from the wood, and the layer of char is filtering undesirable flavors and aromas out of the spirit. The blender, the warehouse manager, and the distiller will keep tabs on the barrels, nosing and tasting them over the years to see how they're developing. At established distilleries, they'll have a good idea of how that path will go, but it's never a certain thing. As the whiskey approaches maturation, another option comes up. Finishing. The whiskey may be dumped from the barrel it's aged in and recasked in a different barrel. This might be a fresh new oak barrel for additional oak flavors. It might be a sherry or port cask, which are often made from distinctly different European oak, which gives a new range of flavors to the whiskey. It might be a red or white wine cask to give a layer of those flavors. It adds flavor, but also expense, and most whiskeys aren't finished. When the whiskey is ready, properly aged for the bottling that's being made from it, the barrel is removed from the warehouse and dumped. It may be only lightly filtered to remove any bits of barrel char, or it might be chilled and more tightly filtered to prevent any protein haziness in your bottle or glass. Some whiskeys are allowed by regulations to have caramel coloring added at this point. Others, like bourbon, are not. The coloring is made from the same grain as the whiskey, 
and is added for visual consistency, though it sure seems that sometimes it's added to make the whiskey look older. The whiskey is usually blended with other barrels at this time, or it may go for a single cask bottling. Once the desired flavor and character are achieved, and the blender or distiller is satisfied, the whiskey is proofed to bottling strength, or left as it came from the barrel for a cask strength whiskey, by slowly adding purified water. Now it's bottled, labeled, boxed, shipped, and sold, perhaps to you or me. That's how whiskey is made. It is a product that is a result of natural ingredients like grain and water, processes like fermentation and distillation, chemical and physical interactions with oak, air, and heat over a number of years, and most importantly, by decisions made by human beings all along the way. That last part is important. Always remember that no matter the size of the distillery, huge or small, no matter the level of automation, no matter how expensive and rare or cheap and plentiful, whiskey is, at its very heart, a handcrafted product. How can you believe anything else? Farmers coax the grain from the soil. They make decisions about when and what to plant and when to harvest. Buyers judge whether to purchase that grain for their whiskey, inspecting each load by eye and hand and nose. The distiller makes the cuts or adjusts the column by nose and palate and even by ear, using their experience to know when things are right. Human hands cut and craft the oak into barrels through every step. It becomes even more sensory in the final stages. The blender knows where the barrels they need to make each expression are aging, what areas in what warehouses are aging the whiskey just right for that particular character, because they've sampled and nosed and tasted through every floor of every warehouse over years. A human being is responsible for creating new expressions of whiskey, choosing the parcels of barrels to go into the bottle, selecting those that might become single cask bottlings. That's how whiskey is made. By hand. Whew! Time for another drink before we get into the common whiskey misconceptions. So here's one more thing that I'm drinking today. You know, Phil gave me more whiskeys than I needed because he wanted me to have a choice. And for my last whiskey, I'm choosing this one. This is a, uh, a one-off they made with the help of Axeman Brewing uh, right down the road. And what they did was take a Baltic Porter that Axeman made with Philip's help. He's also an accomplished home brewer. And uh, after they made the beer, they split off some of it and aged it in used big spring barrels. And then they took those barrels that the beer had aged in and finished some corn whiskey in it. Uh, so I wanted to give you an example of finishing. And by golly, this uh, corn whiskey made with skioring uh, Baltic Porter barrels definitely has the smell of that barrel to this. Now, I've had this whiskey before, but I was a bit rushed and I was talking to other people. I'm getting a chance to just be with, with the whiskey by myself here. So there's definitely a, an aroma of the dark malts that are in that Baltic Porter in the nose. But there's also that um, characteristically sweet aroma of corn whiskey. Mm. Definitely more corn whiskey in the uh, in the palate. The sweetness, a, a really a more insistent sweetness with corn whiskey, but there's still barrel character there. And there is still some of the beer, not as much as there is in the nose. You don't want finishing to overwhelm the whiskey. 
you you want it to be an accent. Mm. Wow, the um, the dark malts, that kind of uh, lager brewed stout imperial beer character really comes through in the finish, though. It's not a lot on the palate, but as it's going down the throat and saying bye-bye, it's just waving to you. It's like, hey, I'm here. I'm here. Look, look what I did to your whiskey. And it's it's pretty good. Nice whiskey. Anyway, that's how whiskey's made. And I, I tried hard to make sure all of that is true and correct because there are some things a lot of people know about whiskey that simply aren't true. So let's run through a few of them. For instance, okay, that bottle's whiskey, but this bottle is scotch or bourbon or Canadian. N not really. They're all whiskey. They're just different types. And it doesn't matter if you spell whiskey with an E or not. It's still fermented from grain, distilled, and aged in oak. Bang. Done. People will tell you bourbon must be made in Kentucky. Nope. There are a list of regulations on what a whiskey must be to be labeled bourbon, including being distilled and aged in the United States, but there's nothing in the regs about bourbon being made in Kentucky. And while we're at it, yes, Jack Daniels is bourbon. I've asked the master distillers at Jack Daniels and George Dickel, and they both said so. But they also said, it's also Tennessee whiskey, and that's how they choose to label it. Next, the best way to drink whiskey is neat. No water, no ice, no mixers. Nope. First off, no one gets to tell you how to drink your whiskey. Don't let them shame you into it. None of that. Now, I might try a whiskey neat first just to see how it is. But after that, drink it however the spirit moves you, so to speak. Again, they'll tell you that older or rare or expensive whiskey is better. Well, sometimes, but the only thing you can say for sure before you taste it is that it's older, rare, or expensive. It's not always better. Sometimes it's worse. Been there, tasted that, and that's the only way to find out. They might tell you scotch is better than bourbon because it's older. Well, scotch is older because it's aged in used barrels in a colder climate, and it takes more time to mature because of that. Bourbon ages in new barrels in hot Kentucky summers, usually, doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, two most effective ways to drive aging faster. It's not better, it's different. Which brings us to the next one. Single malt is better than blended scotch. You know, blanket statements are always suspect. Just as there are phenomenal blended scotch whiskeys, there are also some very humdrum single malts. The thing to do is taste them and make your own decision. And, you know, people might tell you, oh, this brand, whatever it is, whatever their favorite is, is the best. The best might be the most overrated idea in whiskey. Why would you want to settle on just one? Get going. Try more whiskeys. Have some fun. That's enough for now. We might do this again sometime. Maybe I'll get another whiskey person on. We'll have some fun with this. I do have a few events to note. This weekend, June 15th and 16th, has two craft beverage events in the area, and you can still get tickets to either one, or both. Saturday is the Dauphin County Brewfest, going on from 3 to 7 at Fort Hunter Park, just north of Harrisburg. Tickets are $40 at Ticket Leap, or $50 at the door. There'll be brewers, home brewers, food trucks, and live music. Plus, there's a covered bridge right in the park. 
Sunday is the Central PA Tasting Trails Summer Craft Beverage Expo in Talleyrand Park in Belfont. And don't forget to check episode 15 for other Belfont attractions. And that means beer, cider, wine, and spirits. Two sessions, a $20 ticket on Eventbrite, noon to three or four to seven, with food trucks and live music. Biscuit Jam plays the first session, and one of my favorite local bands, Ted and Molly, play four to seven. If you come to the first session, stop by the Elk Creek Aleworks booth and say hi. Kathy and I volunteered to pour. Finally, starting tomorrow, Friday, June 16th, is Happy Valley Restaurant Week in State College, Belfont, Pine Grove Mills, and out in tiny Hublisburg. Restaurant specials, unique cocktails, all kinds of off-menu fun for 10 days. You know, like the best weeks. Get more information and a list of all the participating restaurants at happyvalleyrestaurantweek.com. Yes, really, it's a long website address. happyvalleyrestaurantweek.com. It's a busy weekend, and it's Father's Day, too. If you're taking Dad out on his day, please remember to include a great local dining and drinking experience. There are plenty of recommendations right here on Scene Through a Glass, and I'll be bringing you more real soon. There are two more events coming up, right in good old Milheim. July 29th and 30th will be Milheim Summerfest, with three stages of live music, local food and drink, and a variety of crafts and artwork for sale right in the center of town, at Elk Creek, Pisano Winery, and the Milheim Hotel. Free admission, the music is free, and free parking too. Food and drink, or pay as you go. That's also the kickoff weekend for Route 45 Getaways, a week of special events at the restaurants, cideries, breweries, and wineries along Route 45, from Milheim and Ahrensburg to Center Hall and Bowlesburg, out to Shingletown and Pine Grove Mills. It's a beautiful stretch of road, and there's plenty to see, do, eat, and drink. More information at Route45Getaways.com. That's the show. Um, thanks to me for the interview. And thanks to Philip at Big Spring for the samples, which I walked down the street to pick up at a friend's house where he was having dinner. I love small town Pennsylvania. You can find pictures of whiskey on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass, where you'll find pictures and links and ways to contact me. Please consider subscribing to get notice of new episodes. And if you like the show, please take a moment and drop a rating or review. Thanks. I do have a coffee button set up on my Instagram link tree, Twitter profile, both are at Lou Bryson, and at the Scene Through a Glass Facebook page and blog. If you like the show, rather than a paid subscription, this is an easy way to drop me a few bucks to help keep this going, to pay for tips for bartenders, guests for the Subaru, and some beers. Thanks to those of you who have already donated. Remember, you can always message me directly on social media to let me know what you liked on an episode, what could be improved, and what central Pennsylvania drinks and food producers you'd like to hear from. My mom says hi to everyone out there in podcast land. Next episode? Not really sure at this point. It's been a crazy month and we just tore the back off our house. Love to see what happens. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Lou Bryson on Scene Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State.